Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Whether you need help being more focused at work or having a spiritual crisis or want to understand how you can change your inner self for the better, the popular self-help and spiritual well-being market has got you covered. In Capitalizing Religion, Ideology and the Opiate of the Bourgeoisie, published by Bloomsbury in 2014, Craig Martin, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at St. Thomas Aquinas College, examines the rhetoric of individualism at root in these works and the popular conceptions of spirituality or individual religion. He demonstrates that individual religion has been placed within sets of dichotomies, communal versus individual, tradition versus choice, organized religion versus spirituality, that establish the continuing conversations about contemporary spirituality. Overall, he argues that many spiritual and related self-help discourses recommend quietism, consumerism, and worker productivity, which reproduce the status quo within neoliberal capitalism. In our conversation, we discuss the relationship between individuals and communities, the role of human agency, experience, ideology, contemporary fiction, Emil Durkheim, William James, Karl Marx, and the joys of reading Deepak Chopra. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Craig Martin. Joining me today is Craig Martin, and we're here to talk about his great new book, Capitalizing Religion. Ideology and the Opiate of the Bourgeoisie, published with Bloomsbury in 2014. Welcome, Craig. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Christian. So you are our first uh, return guest, which says a lot about me and how much I love you, Craig, and all your (laughs) your great work. So thanks for coming back to New Books in Religion. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. Yes. So uh, this is a really fantastic book, which I think a lot of people will benefit from. Um, we'll get there in a second, uh, but as we usually begin, uh, we'd like to know a little bit about your background and how you came to the study of religion, um, especially since people might not have heard your interview about your critical introduction to the study of religion book. Could you tell us a little bit about mentors, uh, important moments in your trajectory in the study of religion? Sure thing. Um, well, as many people in religious studies, I'm sure uh, my my interest was uh, primarily devotional when I first went to college. I was a, a biblical studies major and uh, graduated with a Bible major. Um, but by the time I graduated, I decided that I wasn't interested in the subject matter in a devotional way. And uh, at the time, I was kind of like, what else can I do with a BA in religious studies other than go on to get a graduate degree in religious studies? So that's what I did. Um, I went to Claremont School of Theology and got a master's degree and then went to Syracuse, uh, New York to get uh, my PhD at uh, Syracuse University. Um, uh, My my advisor at Syracuse was Gail Hamner, um, whom I'm greatly indebted to uh, uh, as an advisor. She shaped me greatly intellectually. 
um, my dissertation uh, that I was working on there was on uh, politics and religion, which uh, ended up being a book called Masking Hegemony. Um, that was picked up by a book series that Russ McCutcheon edits called Religion and Culture. Um, when I was a graduate student at SU, I don't know, I think I was probably done with coursework, but he uh, came out to Syracuse to visit, um, gave a lecture, and uh, uh, I got to visit him in a meet and greet sort of with graduate students. Um, and we hit it off and kept in touch. Um, uh, I had never even read his work prior to his visiting there, uh, but I picked up some of his work and enjoyed it. And it ended up, uh, I ended up integrating some of his stuff into my uh, dissertation and we kept things up and then he ended up uh, uh, publishing it as a book in his series. Uh, and so uh, he, he's been a, a huge part of the formation of my career um, as well. Uh, clearly what I ended up doing is nothing anywhere near biblical studies. Um, <laughs> although, uh, s somebody recently accused me of, uh, being too textualist in my approach. And to some extent, I blame the fact that I began as a biblical studies person reading text carefully is kind of what I was trained to do from the beginning. So, uh, I end up sticking with that a lot, even when perhaps I shouldn't, but, uh, Oh, well, it crap. works. Right. It works for oh. you. Craig. Don't worry. <laughs> I think uh, what what you are doing, you're doing very well. So thank you. Could you talk uh, a little bit about uh, how this project began to emerge as a book, and perhaps where it fits into the larger trajectory of your your research? You've you've written a lot. You've published a lot. Um, how does this relate to your previous work? And w when did you think of it as a, a book length object? Right. Well, I guess ever since, uh, well, when I was in, when in grad school, um, I took a, a seminar with Gail Hamner um, on Marx and Foucault. So pretty early on, I was uh, exposed to thinking critically about the subject matter in terms of Marxist theory, um, discourse analysis, and things like that. Um, and also, when I was in graduate school, I read uh, Jeremy Corrette and Richard King's Selling Spirituality, which... Um, really stuck with me. Uh, for whatever reason, I read that and I couldn't shake the ideas. I kept coming back to them in my own thoughts, in my own work, and in things that I was reading. I kept uh, all these red flags would pop up that I knew were red flags from having read sell Selling Spirituality back when it first came out. Um, so I'd, I'd been kind of thinking about spirituality, thinking about capitalism. Uh, and then after I finished a critical introduction to the study of religion, I was like, what do I do next? And I had been thinking about these things on and off. So I was like, why don't I start writing a couple of articles and see if I can turn this into something. Uh, so what eventually became in capitalizing religion began as uh, a couple of uh, journal articles that ended up being uh, pieced together into this longer piece. Um, uh, should I say more about that, or uh, did I answer that question? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> so the title of the book is very telling in a number of ways once you've read through the book. So can you help us tease out um, what you mean here? Um, we have a lot yeah. of terms that are 
rooted in theoretical positions uh, that I think are going to be helpful at the outset to to listeners and hopefully to to readers. So, capitalizing religion, ideology, and the opiate of the bourgeoisie. Can you can you tell <laughs> us what you mean here? Yeah. Well. Um... Capitalizing religion, part of what I feel, and and this is uh, really abbreviated. What it what it really means is capitalizing on religion, because I'm looking at how people are appropriating what are traditionally called religious culture or religious forms of culture. How people are appropriating them and capitalizing on them by putting them to use in uh, uh, late capitalist or neoliberal. Uh, uh, economic context. So I'm looking at, for instance, how uh, uh, people write spirituality manuals on how to be more productive at work, and they're appropriating maybe Buddhist discourses, but designed in a way to to capitalize on that discourse for for uh, making you better at your job, for instance. Um, and then when it comes to ideology and the opiate of the bourgeoisie, um, I'm trying to toy with Marx's famous phrase about the opiate of the masses. So uh, as I understand it, and I'm sure people have interpreted the phrase differently in different contexts, but opiate of the masses I, I took as an, a very ambivalent phrase that, that for Marx he saw um, – you know, giving people religion as soothing some of the pains that were produced by their capitalist context, um, so that religion is something that eases suffering, but also something that was a band aid that did not uh, solve the problems at their root, but rather uh, just eased, uh, anesthetized them to the difficulties of life. And for instance, of a, a factory, uh, and in his descriptions of what life is like in a factory and the you know, 1800s is just friggin' miserable um, by pretty much anybody's standards. Um, so even if you hate Marxism, I mean, just just the the go back and read the description of what the conditions were like in the factory with these kids who were like 12 years old working 18 hour days. Um, it's uh, I think it's sickening by pretty much anybody's uh, standards. But anyhow, so ideology or opiate of the masses is like, you know, the religion that helps anesthetize people to these problems. Well, what interests me in this book is less the masses and more like the middle class, the bourgeoisie. What, how are they appropriating religion in ways that anesthetize them to life in late capitalism? Um, and I think the the... The, the latter chapters on uh, these spirituality manuals that are designed to pay, make people more productive at their job is, I think, a perfect example of this. This is perhaps an, an opiate of the middle classes more than an opiate of the masses in a, in a way. This term ideology also plays a very important role in your analysis. Um, can you flesh out what this term means and how you're using it in the book? Yeah, um, uh, this is something that uh, this is something that probably I want to address in future publications after after Foucault and after post-structuralism. Ideology is uh, often taken to be a dirty word that um, 
that it implies that there is, you know, well, the way that Althusser used it, and I love Althusser, but it's ridiculous the way he talks about, you know, there's there's true scientific knowledge on the one hand, and then there's just the lies that everybody else consumes. You have to have a capital O objective sense of scientific knowledge for that kind of definition of ideology to make sense and most of us don't accept that kind of capital O objective knowledge any longer so how do you have ideology well I think that um, we can still have ideology um, and ideology critique um, it's just that the form will not take the kind of Althusserian uh, it's yeah it's not I'm, I'm not Althusserian in the sense of I believe that there's some sort of capital o objective knowledge of the world rather I take like for example Judith Butler tells us that you know uh, gender is something that is performed well from that perspective the claim that uh, gender is innate looks an awful lot like an ideology that covers up or obscures the extent to which um, gender is a performance rather than innate. So I don't think that you have to, I, don't, I mean, as far as I know, Judith Butler doesn't believe in capital O objectivity. So I don't think that we have to have capital O objectivity to say that from some perspectives, other claims look like a distortion or um, look like they obscure um, what things look like from that perspective. I don't know if uh, people will be persuaded at my um, insistence on continuing to use the concept of ideology, and maybe that's something I'll, I'll have to try to defend in future publications. We'll push you in that direction, Craig. We look forward to it. <laughs> so you open the book with this story about your father, and you use this to set up some of the aims in the book. Can you Can you tell us about your father and how his story – narrates this rhetoric of individualism, which is at the center of your book. Yeah. Um, so um, first I should give a hat tip to Russ McCutcheon. Um, I had this anecdote buried in the, in the end of the introduction and he was reading a, a draft of it and he was like, you know what, uh, this is the lead. This is what you need to start with. And I think that that really, uh, uh, I think it ended up it ended up being a narrative that I returned to throughout the book, and I'm really thankful for him for encouraging me to to push that to the forefront. So, so this narrative about my dad. My my dad um, was upwardly mobile. He grew up in a blue collar family um, and uh, went to college. And by the time that I was uh, I don't know, in elementary school, we were probably you know what you would consider a good middle class family. We had a nice ranch house in Mississippi. Um, uh, we had go-karts, or, well, a go-kart. Um, we had nice property. Uh, we got to go on family vacations, you know, the sorts of things that middle-class white families enjoy. Um, we didn't have to worry about bills too much. So, you know, upward mobility from a, a, a blue-collar family to a middle-class family, I think, is a a pretty big deal. And then I, I ask, you know, to, to whom do we attribute responsibility for this upward mobility? Well, the, the ideology of individualism would attribute it to my dad because of the choices he made because of his hard work in college, because of his intelligence and merit, he was able to succeed in a job market. Um, by contrast, um, 
a social theory might say, well, uh, a white man in Mississippi might have been afforded more opportunities than minorities were. Um, so that maybe it's not all him and his choices, but the social conditions, or maybe it was to some extent, uh, um, a Protestant work ethic that he internalized as a child that he can't take responsibility for because he's not the one who who uh, internalized it or socialized himself. You know, it was his parents who socialized that into him. So I ask, uh, who's responsible for the success of my dad and our family? But then I note that um, uh, my dad worked for uh, what was a General Motors uh, uh subsidiary uh it ended up becoming independent of general motors eventually and was renamed delphi um after well in in the the 1990s and early 2000s there's increased competition between american automobile industry and uh for instance japanese or korean uh automobile industries he he, uh he ended up having to retire early or risk losing his pension altogether because the factory where he was working as middle management was uh, closing. And in fact, a lot of his job up to that point had been involved in uh, helping transfer factories to Mexico where the labor was cheaper. Like part of his job was making sure the transition from the factory to Mexico went smoothly. So in a sense, his job was to put himself out of the job, um, and eventually that's that's what happened. He had to retire early. However, right after he retired, the company filed for bankruptcy. I may be getting some of the details wrong, but around that time they filed for bankruptcy and they cut his pension in half. Um, and then he tried to re-enter the job market right after the 2008 uh, economic crisis. Uh, that was a really hard time for a 58, 60-year-old man to try to find a job, and he was a failure at it. Um, he tried selling insurance for a while. He tried selling cars for a while. Um, he was probably not cut out to be a salesman. No matter how hard he tried at it, he failed at it. He ended up, um, right before his death, he was stocking shelves at a uh, Target. Um, so... So we have this, uh, you know, this the story of a uh, upward mobility from blue collar to pretty good um, middle class, upper middle class lifestyle, and then a devolution back to he was stocking shelves at Target before his death, and um, he had high blood pressure, probably as a result of his biology, probably partly as a result of his anxiety over not having a job. Um, and he died from a massive brain hemorrhage, uh, a, a stroke that sh- struck while he was taking a nap after a, a long day at work. Um, so, the, so then I ask, who's responsible for for this? Well, the ideology of individualism says that's my dad's fault. He's the one who chose this job in a in a industry with less than stable prospects. He's the one who didn't try harder at his salesmanship. He's the one, etc. Uh, from a structural perspective, we might say, well, uh, this happened to a lot of uh, people on the cusp of retirement um, after 2008 for reasons that were completely outside their control. Um, 
So to whom do we assign responsibility, to the individual or to the social circumstances? Now, uh, right right before his death, uh, to help deal with his joblessness um, and to help motivate himself, my dad was reading a lot of self-help literature. Um, I think for a while, Tony Robbins was his favorite. And uh, the message of people like Tony Robbins is that you have the power within yourself to do anything, anything you want. All you have to do is activate that power, and if you buy the next Tony, 10 Tony Robbins books, he'll tell you exactly how to unleash the power within. Um, he was My dad's reading this literature that essentially says, if you're not succeeding, it's your own fault. So while I might have said, well, shit, the... the the state of the automobile industry might have had something to do with what happened to my dad. Tony Robbins says, nope, it was my dad and my dad's choices. So my dad's reading this literature to help himself before he died with the fact that um, he is a failure. That literature is blaming him. And that just made me sick to my stomach um, to, to go visit my father and to see him reading this stuff that's blaming himself for his conditions, which I think my dad was probably partly responsible for, but largely, largely not. So after he died, I, uh, I got this like fire inside to think critically about these discourses on individualism, these discourses, that, uh, especially these like spirituality manuals that say you can do anything you want if only you unleash the power within. Um, we see this with uh, some of the type of uh, Oprah's pushing the secret. I don't talk about the secret in this book, but that's like a perfect example of this type of literature. Um, after my dad died, I was uh, prompted to, to try to reflect critically on what's going on with this literature, who the literature blames, and how this literature teaches people to manage their lives um, in ways that might help them, might not help them. Now, when, when you get into the book, it's basically two sections. The first section, you're kind of setting up the theoretical underpinnings of your, of, of your study. And then in the second half, you give us some really nice uh, and interesting case studies of how, how this plays out. So in the first chapter, uh, you title it Individuality is Zero. And I think one of the sources for your understanding of uh, individualism comes from Durkheim, if I'm not mistaken, and specifically division of labor and society, I think plays a very formative part, at least in this chapter. So can, can you talk a little bit about how Durkheim's useful for thinking about this idea of individual religion that you uh, focus on? Yeah. So, uh, this uh, this reading started when I was um, teaching. I, I teach a class on capitalism and religion, and we read Marx, Durkheim, and Weber. And the Durkheim that I choose for that course is Division of Labor and Society. And I found as I was teaching that I have this like love hate relationship with the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, mostly love. I, I really have a soft spot in my heart for Durkheim. But in this book. He goes on at great lengths to talk about how we are constrained by social conditions outside our control, that the, it's the division of labor in society makes us who we are. And in the book, um, he responds to a more liberal theorist named Spencer, um, who argues that as societies evolve, 
individuals become more free and less constrained by social structures. And Durkheim says that's that's sheer nonsense. Durkheim says it's clear that as you advance towards um, more complicated societies, as the division of labor grows, the number of constraints on subjects increases rather than decreases. He says like the the way that we regulate families, the way that we regulate commerce, the way that we regulate transportation, telecommunications, although he probably wouldn't have used that word. But he's like the, the, the government expands incredibly the more complicated society gets. And for him, he uses these organic metaphors that um, each – with the division of labor, every section of society is its own organ. But the government is the – like the uh, the brain and the spinal cord that regulates the interaction between all the organs. He's like the more complicated of a system you have, the more complicated and more developed of a nervous system that you require to organize all the other parts. So he says Spencer's idea that, uh, that government should just shrink – uh, and and individuals to be more free couldn't be further from the truth. It's patent nonsense. But then that, that that's like one half of Durkheim. Then when he wants to start talking about how modern people are more advanced than primitive savages um, in you know uh, African tribes or whatever, uh, he. When, when he wants to advance that moderns are more advanced than primitives, then he starts invoking, well, the way that we are more advanced is that we are more free and more liberated from the social norms that bind them. So I see this as a, a – when he's arguing against Spencer, moderns are more and more constrained by social norms and social regulations. When he's being – his ethnocentrist racist self, he uh, uh, he says, no, we moderns are more free than the primitives. Um, and I think that the only reason that he really falls back on that we're more free argument is to justify his ethnocentrism. Now, uh, of course, I don't think criticizing a 19th century French uh, sociologist for ethnocentrism is particularly interesting. Of course he was ethnocentric. Every French and European thinker of that time was pretty much ethnocentric. The reason this interests me is because I find people say exactly the same sort of thing in modern literature on spirituality and organized religion. That we see homologous arguments where people are saying, well, organized religion constrains people. It ties them down to tradition, whereas individual spirituality is liberating and offers people autonomy. And for that reason, some of them imply, for that reason, individual spirituality is superior to institutional religion, which is more constraining. And I, I point out in the intro to the book that this is exactly the, the – this is the exact language that um, – uh, uh, Ronald Reagan used to talk about democracy and communism. Now, if there's a red flag for you, it's that. Like, if I'm if I am repeating the sorts of things that Ronald Reagan says, that's like, wait, something's wrong here. But that's exactly what these these people. Um, and I I 
I, I pick on Paul Helis in particular, who's written several books on spirituality, where he uses this distinction that's identical to Durkheim's, that's identical to Reagan's, where one type of institution is liberating, it allows for autonomy. Another type of institution um, basically makes people a slave to the system. Um, and as you know, uh, as I, I think we're all constrained all the time, and that this idea that some institutions are lead towards individual autonomy is probably just a rhetorical flourish designed to legitimate your favorite uh, social institution over other social institutions. So that's – I'm not really picking on Durkheim. I love Durkheim. I'm picking on Durkheim specifically because I see people making the same types of 19th century ethnocentric mistakes. They're just applying them to new types of, uh, new types of institutions or new types of contexts. As you move on and you – so in this first part, you really stake your claim that there are no individuals uh, – in a sense, and the other part of this argument is that many of these discourses about spirituality and contemporary scholarship also frame them in a dichotomy between religion and secular categories uh, or public and private. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about how these types of arguments fit into scholarship on individual religion and what what are these – people missing, which is very much what your argument is. They're missing something here. Right. Well, I mean, so in this, in the second chapter, I move on to talk about the, the category of religion and how people are employing it, how they're making this like there's um, uh, secular versus sacred distinction or a public versus private distinction is uh, – uh, permeates a lot of this literature on uh, spirituality or on the changing or the individualization of religion in the 21st century. Um, and a lot of what I have to say there, I think, is is among the least interesting claims in the book insofar as this territory has already been tread by uh, Tomoko Masuzawa, Russell McCutcheon, Tim Fitzgerald, these people have already well long since demonstrated that the term religion has normative baggage that we should maybe start to try to think past. Um, but in that chapter in particular, what I try to focus on is how um, uh, oh crap, lost my train of thought. What I try to focus on is the the way that people talk about how the individualization or autonomization of religion is tied to this like public-private thing that perhaps religion is no longer as publicly big as it used to be, but it's flourishing under the surface at the private level. Um one, I think the idea that religion uh, is a distinct form of culture is problematic for all those other reasons I've already waved my hand at. Um, and in addition, what's interesting to me is that these discourses on spirituality, which say that, oh, it's increasingly becoming a private matter. Like when I read these people who write spirituality manuals, they see everything they're doing is having public consequences. So uh, this leads me to like question: uh, Does does this this uh, privatization claim fit the way that people who are writing spirituality books does it fit their self perception? Um, and I, I argue later on in the book, no, that um, uh, 
uh, that these people who write on spirituality see what they're doing as having very public consequences um, and that uh, sometimes universal consequences that they're, they claim to be making claims that should apply to every level of society across the board. Now, not, not all of them do that, but some of them do. So it makes me wonder the privatization thesis seems like the yes if all of these people are saying, oh, no, this has you know, completely public consequences. So in that chapter, I'm trying to start to dig a hole in the the, the public private distinction, and uh, I think I drive the wedge further in uh, later on in the book. At least I hope I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also have a section that talks about the role or influence of William James and his folk theory of religion, um, and how this is shape the the discourses on individual religion can can you remind listeners uh who may not remember what james said uh about ideas of experience and and how this relates to religion and then how this uh kind of helps to formulate contemporary discourses on spirituality still right um so and uh, what I'm about to say is going to focus kind of on a summary of a summary that I have on page 66 for, for James in varieties of religious experience. He's got this theory of religion of uh, that all religions start with some sort of iconic figure, having a pure experience of some sort, Jesus, Muhammad, the Buddha. Uh, these are the types of names that he throws out. They had this direct personal communication with the divine. That, that's his words. Um, he says these experiences are what is essential to religion and that the institutional religion or what the, the term that people prefer now is organized religion. Institutional religion is a secondary thing that's added on to this pure religious experience. So he says that the religious experience is the core, the nucleus of religion and the institutional religion is a secondary thing. Then he goes on to say that the institutional thing is tied up with people who desire to control others. Uh, one of the phrases he uses is, quote, lust for dogmatic rule. So these disciples of Jesus, these disciples of Muhammad who haven't had the pure religious experience themselves, they want to control others, so they use the ideas of the founder. Um, to force other people to uh, basically serve them. So he, he talks about how they force them into exclusive devotion. Um, uh, he uses the phrase hypocrisy and tyranny and meanness. So these disciples who are starting churches are hypocrites and they're tyrannical and they're mean. And, and uh, what's bizarre about this is not that he makes this claim, but that he says all religions follow this exact same path, that this is basically a universal narrative that all religions fit into. Um, so we, uh, I argue that we see this pop up in discourses on spirituality, that discourses on spirituality often say, you know, um, spirituality is this pure thing. Individual religion is this pure thing. Organized religion is something added to it that's unnecessary, that's designed to control people. Um, and I argue that uh, nothing could be more ahistorical um, or 
or ignorant of the historical facts than this this uh, essentialist narrative. Um, that it it appears to be historical. It says all oh, of these things develop historically in this way, but it's completely ahistorical because it's a teleology that says they all develop the same way every time. So it's a an ahistorical history, if you will, um, and. M- m- Again, with James, picking on James is uh, not that uh, brilliant or anything. Picking on 100-year-old thinkers is not amazing. But what interests me is how that kind of narrative that James gives us pops up over and over again in contemporary discourses on individual religion and spirituality. Um, So my critique of him is similar to my critique of... uh, uh, Durkheim, um, except that I think that James doesn't have the kind of redeeming side that Durkheim does, but that's another matter, I guess. Now, after setting up the theoretical framework for analysis, the second half explores these really interesting case studies. Um, And before you get into some of the specifics of those, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how this research went. How did you go about selecting text? Uh, what kind of criteria were you looking for? Um, and h- how how was your uh, time reading through self-help manuals? <laughs> oh, man, I hated reading all these self-help <laughs> manuals. Um, well, some of them I had... Uh, well, I should point out they're not all self-help manuals. Uh, I treat what I would consider four self-help manuals and two novels, but the novels I think have an ideology embedded in them. That's very similar to those of the the spirituality or self-help manuals. Um, I had read the novels years before um, one on the recommendation of friends. One I was thinking about at one point designing a course on religion around uh, uh, books written for children or preteen books written on religion to see um, what kind of stereotypes would bubble up out of these uh, children's books. That's when I read the um, Does My Head Look Big in This, which is the novel about the girl who decides to wear the hijab. Um, As I... Okay, so as I started working on this book, I picked out four things that I decided I was going to make central to the opiate of the bourgeoisie as I defined it. And that was um, that they show themes of quietism or accommodationism with the idea that people should subject themselves to the existing political or economic structures and be relatively passive before them. Um, Second, consumerism. Um, promoting consumption or naturalizing consumption. Three, um, the promotion of productivity, teaching people how to be more productive at their jobs or encouraging them to take responsibility for their own productivity. And then last is uh, what I call anti-structuralism or individualism, this emphasis on assigning responsibility for um, all social ills um, to individuals as opposed to social structures, like with with my dad, right? So the problem's not the economic collapse of 2008. The problem's that my dad's just not try, trying hard enough to sell insurance. This kind of individualism, I argue, draws attention away from the way, uh, draws attention away from how social structures impact individuals. So the again, the four things are quietism, consumerism, 
productivity and individualism. Once I picked those things out, the, the books I had uh, chose to analyze followed from that. I picked books that exemplified one or more of these, these ideological strands. Um, and I chose things that would be fairly accessible to a middle-class audience. So I went to used bookstores um, and looked around at what was on the shelf there. Um, I went to Barnes & Noble, or uh, I think for a while when I was working on this, Border still existed, and I was going to places like that and seeing when you go to the religion section, the spirituality section. Sorry, my cat's having a attack <laughs> my cat just almost sneezed himself to death sorry um i was going to barnes and noble and seeing if you go to the spirituality section of the religion section um what's what's easily accessible so i picked things that were by major publishers um like uh harper collins or um Double Day or uh things like this i i came across a lot of really really interesting stuff that wasn't as accessible like uh, there's a, a yeah some stuff that wasn't as accessible so i just didn't include it because i didn't think it was as representative of uh what middle class consumers were most likely to be uh reading if they were interested in spirituality so uh of course my selection process was subjective in terms of i was choosing things that i thought fit this ideology, which I had picked out, so I'll take responsibility for the selection. But the, one of the, one of the essential conditions is that they be relatively accessible to, to uh, consumers. Um, yeah. So the first topic you tackle is this idea of quietism, and you do it through a novel uh, by Christopher Moore. Can you can you tell us what this narrative is all about, and what does it reveal about? modern individual religion yeah so um there's this and i think that that book was a bestseller um and when it first came out i had a ton of people recommend it to me and uh i have to say uh i really love christopher moore i've heard a lot of his novels and i enjoyed them and i find this novel to be particularly hilarious but i think it totally teaches people quietism um what the the novel presents itself as is a um a new gospel about jesus uh, who was jesus what was his life about and it's it's clearly fictional and it's clearly designed to be hilarious um but the the author teaches or well jesus in the book teaches that um uh Jesus in the book teaches that we should accept the social and political structures around us. So in the novel, you have Jesus go to um, the mystic East to learn about Buddhism and learn about uh, Hinduism and all this stuff. He learns these great spiritual truths of the other religious traditions. And then he comes back to Israel and he sees the zealots um, fighting against the Romans. And he is like, you guys have completely missed the point of religion. Religion's not about challenging Rome. Religion's not about liberation of the self from political powers. It's about liberation of the self inside. And that's all that matters. That all that matters is that you are inside free. And uh, he actually 
Jesus in the book says something like, Moses didn't need to lead the Israelites out of Egypt for them to be free. If only they realized they were free with him, they would have been truly free. So, so Jesus in this book teaches that you can be a slave and you're still free as long as you feel like you're free inside. Which, if it were only a novel, fine, whatever, that's funny, uh, it's an entertaining read, maybe with a bullshit ideology, but whatever. But in the afterward, the author says, you know, I've clearly made this story up. This story is clearly fiction. However, the views that I've attributed, the views that I have attributed to Jesus are basically all the truths of the great world religions, all the truths of all great thinkers, because anybody who is smart and sat down to think about it would have come to the same conclusions that Jesus did. So I argue in the book that despite the fact that he says, my book is bull bullshit, I made this up, he's at the same time saying, but it's really true. It's what every logical human being would come to the like every logical human being would come to the same conclusion if only they thought about it. That's that's a brilliant rhetorical strategy to say this is bullshit out of one side of your mouth, but say actually this is universal truth out of the other side of your mouth. So um, so I, I take him to task, take Christopher Moore to task for um, uh, presenting a Jesus who tells us that um, we are all free even if we're slaves. Um, just because we should feel free within. You look at another novel, too. Uh, Does my head look big in this? And here you're focusing on topics of consumer culture and specifically in the context of Muslims. Can, can you tell us what this narrative is about and what does it tell us about freedom of choice, consumerism, Islam? Right. Um so this book is written by, um, I think, someone who identifies as a, a Pakistani. No, wait, was it Pakistani-born? No, not Pakistani, a Palestinian Muslim um, who apparently immigrated to Australia. And she's a, like a civil rights lawyer or something in Australia, um, but writes these novels for um, teenagers or preteens. Um, so, so what we get is a feminist progressive Muslim writing about, and in the novel, this girl, um, the character's name is Amal. Amal decides to choose to wear the hijab against her Australian Muslim's uh, uh, wishes. Her, her, her parents don't want her to wear the hijab. They think it's a little bit too radical. Her mother does wear the hijab, but doesn't think her daughter should. Um, so, but the daughter says, you know what, um, I want to wear the hijab. It's an expression of my religion and I'm going to do it. I have the right as an individual, I have the right to do whatever I want. So you can't prevent me. So she takes us on. Um, and in the, the, as the novel progresses, it's pretty clear that the author is presenting true Islam is nothing more than freedom of choice. Um, pretty much full stop that what it means to be a Muslim is to choose for yourself what you want to do. And this manifests itself in her saying to everybody else around her, you can't tell me what to wear. I choose what I will wear Two, Um, she emphasizes, uh, uh, looking attractive. She's, uh, the characters internalized, um, 
apparently Australian middle class social norms about clothing and fashion. And she strives above all to make sure that her hijab matches her shoes or matches her purse or matches her dress or whatever it is that she's wearing. Um, matches her makeup. So the first thing that she does when she decides that she's going to wear the hijab is go to the mall to find matching outfits. And the uh, the the expression of identity through consumer through consumerism is is fundamental to how she imagines herself as a Muslim. And then the third thing I think is through career. All throughout the book, she she emphasizes this character emphasizes that she wants to choose what she will do as her career. Um, she won't be married off. She's got a friend whose parents are trying to arrange her marriage. Um, and she's like, that's not right. You have the right to choose your own family. You have the right to choose your own career, etc." So at, at the end of the day, and she more or less, the, the main character more or less explicitly states that um, the essence of Islam is freedom of choice. And I think that this is a fascinating um, uh use of Muslim discourses to justify or to legitimate um, middle-class consumerist career choices. Um, it's uh, brilliant on her part. Um, and uh, in the novel, also, the girl gets a lot of social capital. All of her friends think that they're, they're like impressed. Wow. You're so radical, but without being a terrorist, it uh, all uh, she impresses her friends and impresses also a boy that she likes. Who's like, wow, that's really, you're, you're really going against the man or you're going against the status quo by wearing the hijab, even though you don't have to. Um, uh, so she, she, she gets social capital from this choice. And, and one of the things that I argue in the book is that it appears that our, our consumer choices are always guided by a social logic that we may or may not be familiar with. This character seems not to be familiar with the fact that her choices are guided by a social logic. A social logic. Um, and in fact, her emphasis on freedom of choice obscures where her choices might be coming from or what might guide the choices that we make. So... Uh, I guess in, in the end, I conclude that the book not only naturalizes, uh, not only uses Muslim discourses to naturalize consumerism, but also to obscure the the causes of our choices um, in our world. In another chapter, and you've you've kind of alluded to this a little bit already, uh, you focus on uh, spiritual work manuals. Maybe I don't know how you might. Uh, categorize them, but one is called work as spiritual practice. The other is the reinvention of work. How do these uh, books promote a modern capitalist work work ethic? Yeah, um, one of them uh, uses Buddhist discourses to say, um, you know, if if work is stressful, take five minutes to meditate, and then when you get back to work, you'll be more productive. Um, I'm being really glib, but the book's about that superficial. Um, and, uh, the other, the other book in that chapter is, uh, by someone who is from, from what I understand, Matthew Fox is pretty well respected as a, you know, author of modern spirituality. Um, and he uses the Bhagavad Gita, um, a lot. Now the Bhagavad Gita, um, talks about how we must do our our duty in the book, the the character um, Krishna 
tells uh, Arjuna that you, as a warrior, have to do your duty as a warrior and fight this incipient battle, whether or not you want to, because that's your social duty. Um, what Matthew Fox does is he says we all have a duty um, uh, to to work. Um, that our work is an expression of the cosmological spirit of the universe. So uh, there's this spirit behind the universe. Call it Krishna, call it whatever you want. We are expressions of that spirit so that when we are doing our duty, when we are doing our work, we are expressing the spirit. And that's a good thing. He even says that um, we should put kids to work, that kids are not working enough and that we should uh, we should put kids to work so that they can enjoy this participation in the the work of the spirit in the universe as well um and one thing that i becomes uh, a theme that i touch upon repeatedly in these last few chapters that are case studies is most of these authors use the same idea that all religions teach this all religions teach what I am telling you. And this seems to me to be an authorizing move designed to legitimate whatever it is they're saying, right? If if all religions say what it is I'm telling you, it can't be wrong. And that's something that um, that Matthew Fox does. It's something that uh, the characters in uh, the the, uh, the Jesus novel and the uh, consumerist novel they they those characters do the same thing. That this is something that all religions teach, so it must be true. Um, so yeah, I think that related to something I was thinking a minute ago, but now I don't remember <laughs> how it connects back. <laughs> um, the, the final chapter is, uh, thinking about two books, which are v- very well known. I think God wears lipstick and the power of now. Um, and this, this kind of ties back to this narrative about your father and how the cause of suffering is ascribed to individuals. So Perhaps you can wrap up the conversation um, in thinking about how these books conceive of the relationship between individual and society and, uh, you know, clarify how we might consider the role of the wider social, economic, political structures in in thinking about individual religion. Right. Well, if I could go go back a minute to um, one of the things that I talk about in this chapter goes back to like Augustine. And this is, uh, for whatever reason, I've always been interested in the doctrine of free will. When I was in grad school, I did a comprehensive exam on the doctrine of free will in antiquity. And I looked at like what the Stoics said about freedom, what Augustine and Pelagius and um, Origen said about freedom, uh, Aristotle. And what I discovered is that, or what I argued, I guess, uh, is that folks like Augustine when Augustine wants to emphasize God's omnipotence, he says that God has all the power in the world. And when he's talking about why there is suffering and evil in the world, then all of a sudden he introduces free will and says, well, maybe God doesn't have all the power. We have some of the power. Therefore, you have to attribute the cause of evil in the world to individuals who make choices against God's wishes. Um, so, it appears in Augustine that the introduction of free will. This is what I'm arguing. Maybe, maybe I'm full of crap. I'm not an August. Uh, I'm not an Augustine scholar. But it appears to me that he introduces free will to protect God from being responsible for suffering in the world. Um. So I say, you know, this is theodicy. How can we account for suffering in the world? Augustine's response is free will. 
Well, these these books, like The Power of Now and um, uh, God Wears Lipstick, these authors say that you have it within your power to have anything you want in society. All you have to do is act on it. And if you are suffering, it is your own fault because you should be choosing differently. Um, God wears lipstick. The author um, claims to have her sources in like ancient uh, Kabbalistic writings. I mean, and she says that, um, you know, if you're suffering in this life, it's because of karma that you accumulated in a, a, a previous life. She even goes so far as to say that if you're, um, as your if your husband and this book's aimed at women, if your husband is cheating on you, if your husband is cruel to you, this is your own fault. You asked for it because of some karma in a previous life. Similarly, Eckhart Tolle in The Power of Now says that all suffering is completely a result of you and your individual perspective on the universe and that if you transform your perspective, all of your suffering will end. He even, he even says that if you um, transform your thinking, you, that, uh, you, that will help your physical health. He doesn't even talk – he doesn't restrict this to mental health. He says this will improve your physical health and you will stop aging. I shit you not. He says that you will stop aging if you think positively about the universe and, and get your own thinking. And he he goes so far as to say that a woman who is being beaten by her boyfriend or husband, it's her own fault because of the choices that she has made. She's drawing this negativity to herself. So um, I think that these are really blatant examples of what I would I would call a, a modern theodicy, where people are attributing all causes of suffering in the world to individuals and individuals alone, right? Uh, feminism, sexism, uh, patriarchy has got like patriarchy apparently has nothing to do with uh, uh, being tr- women being trodden on by their boyfriends or husbands. It's all the women's fault. Um, and uh, I guess, I mean, I guess what's kind of running behind this is I think that this is idiotic. Um, and yet these discourses are best-selling uh, uh, books. The, you know, these, these are bestsellers. Um, and, and I think that these, these ideologies protect uh, social and structural organization of our society from criticism because if you think if you read the book that tells you it's my fault that i'm unemployed it's my fault that i can't sell insurance it's my fault that my pension was cut in half because apparently i'm thinking negative things about the universe um then you're asking fewer questions if if you're thinking that way you're asking fewer questions about the social and structural causes of of your uh, possible suffering um, and again, so this is to return in the end to uh, where we, we began with my dad, that he was taking responsibility for himself um, for, I don't know, I guess my dad's responsible for all the automobile industry in America going to Mexico. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know what to say other than this. This just seems obviously ridiculous to me. But it, uh, at the same time, eh, things like the power of now are bestsellers and people are uh, consuming. And uh, apparently some people buy into this rhetoric and this ideology. Yeah. 
Well, Craig, uh, thanks for again for writing another wonderful book. Before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about what types of things you're working on now? I heard you're writing a manifesto on identity, discourse, and ideology. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a couple of articles that I'm working on that I started uh, earlier that I'm finishing up. Nothing super exciting. Um, I don't I don't have any immediate plans for something, but I've been thinking a lot about um, social constructionism and uh, ideology critique. Like I was saying before, um, how can we defend the use of the concept of ideology without um, without having capital O objectivity? And I'm I'm thinking about writing something on that. I don't know what and i don't even have anything other than just like the idea of the thing at this point um uh crap i'm not even ready for my fall classes yet <laughs> let alone thinking about what i might write next year well think <laughs> so, think positive craig and things will work out yeah exactly exactly oh man i read so many self-help books that <laughs> i just wanted to throw across the room um and I, I read several Deepak Chopra books too, which uh, they were just, oh, yeah, it was, it was, it was. I guess it was kind of entertaining because it was hilarious, but it was also maddening at the same time. Oh, I'm glad I'm I'm done with that. I'm not writing any more in self help literature. <laughs> I can't bring myself to read any more of it. <laughs> well, Craig, you did a, a great job with this book. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it, and good luck with everything in the future thank you thank you christian thanks for having me that was my conversation with craig martin about his wonderful new book capitalizing religion ideology and the opiate of the bourgeoisie published with bloomsbury in 2014 thanks again for listening to new books in religion 